Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1. I was thinking this week about how much revolution can be packed in a few small words. That's an appropriate thing to think about the week of the 4th of July when the Declaration of Independence is this relatively brief, condensed document that contains, you know, in many ways, the DNA for the revolution, for the, for the, for the uh, independence of the United States. The text today is Acts chapter 1, mostly, mostly in verses 6 through 11, though we'll go through the earlier part as well. The text today is the revolution. It's not our revolution, it's the revolution. Some of the most revolutionary, in fact, I would say the most revolutionary ideas are contained in our text today. Ideas in the whole world contained in our text today. Um, We're going to talk mostly today about the ascension of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And what we're mostly interested in today is exploring the connection between these two big major doctrines. Uh, Textually, they appear in our text twice together. In verses 1 through 5, they appear together. And in verses 6 through 11, they appear again together. Jesus connects these two things repeatedly. Luke wants us to see the connection between the ascension of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So it's connected textually. It's also connected emphatically by Jesus himself in John 16 when he says, I must go and it is good for me to go so that the Lord, so that the Father can send the Holy Spirit. This connection is very interesting. We'll, we'll spend a lot of our time exploring why these two things are connected, why the ascension of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are connected in Scripture the way they are. But as we're thinking about these things, we also want to notice the connection to the question of the kingdom in verse 5. This is where uh, the disciples ask Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, So we want to see the connection to the kingdom with all of this, and also the connection to the mission of God in this passage as well. Jesus responds to this question about the kingdom with discussion of both the ascension and the the Holy Spirit. Well, he he ascends in the Holy Spirit. Uh, But also, he, he refers to the mission of God. In fact, the very thing Jesus refers to as the mission of God in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's, that winds up being the outline for the whole book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 7, the emphasis is mostly on the mission of God happening in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 9, the mission moves out to Samaria. And then from chapters 10 through 28, the mission is moving to the outermost parts. So this little statement in verse 8 about the mission of God Luke is depositing here as an outline for what we will see through the book of Acts. And, and he's doing that uh, not in a vacuum. The connection is not only that he's showing us the outline, but he's bracketing this outline of what Acts is going to be about with these two doctrines. The doctrine of the ascension of Jesus, Jesus uh, ascending to heaven to reign at the right hand of God, and the doctrine of the indwelling spirit. So Luke's giving us in this little section of scripture that we'll look at today, he's giving us kind of all of the material that will be laid out repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. As I referenced a moment ago, one of the most interesting things is this relationship between the Holy Spirit indwelling and Jesus ascending. There are these moments in the book of Acts 
when you see the mission of God at work, you see the Godhead at work seeking and saving the lost. And you see the ascended Jesus tag-teaming with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's a beautiful thing. There are moments, whenever the mission expands, whenever the mission goes in, in Acts, you'll often see these two things together. You'll see the ascended Jesus doing something, and you'll see the indwelling Holy Spirit doing something. So, for instance, in chapter 6, which is one of the first major pivots into the mission, we see Act, uh, we see Acts. We see Stephen, the first deacon, right, filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he do as he's filled with the Holy Spirit? He's suffering persecution as a result of his proclaiming the gospel. And what's the vision? You see the bracket, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looks up and sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. So you see the ascension of Jesus. Jesus ascended at the right hand of the Father, participating along with the Holy Spirit in the movement of mission. As a result of the stoning of Stephen, we're moving out of Jerusalem, out further into the mission. The persecution is driving Christians out into the world, both the ascended Jesus and the indwelling Spirit, working together to move God's mission out into the world. In Acts chapter 9, Saul slash Paul, he goes through a name change as part of his conversion. He's on the road to Damascus. What does he see on the road to Damascus? What's the last thing he sees on the road to Damascus? He sees the ascended Jesus. He sees Jesus ascended. He sees Jesus reigning at the right hand of the Father. And that ascension motive, that ascension uh, narrative, is followed with a spirit narrative. He's told to go and meet a guy named Ananias. Ananias will be filled with the whole full of the Holy Spirit. And Ananias actually says to Paul, um, Jesus, the ascended Jesus, has told me to pray with you so that you could receive the spirit, the indwelling spirit. Again, this is another big pivot into mission. Paul is this, this missionary to the Gentiles. And these two forces, the ascended Jesus and the indwelling spirit, are working together to move that mission forward. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 9, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 10, 9 and 10, uh, G, uh, Peter is at the, at the precipice, at the cusp of another big move in the mission. And it's when he is at uh, Simon, he's at the Tanner's house and he's hungry and he's on the rooftop and he receives a vision, right? And this vision comes from whom? It comes from the ascended Jesus. And that, that vision involves Peter going to the house of a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, a first Gentile convert to Christianity. And who's the star of the, who's the Godhead star of the show in Cornelius's house, right? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills him and his household and they are saved. So when you see God's mission at work in the book of Acts, it is not unusual. In fact, I think I would expect on these big, strong movements, these big initial lurches forward, of the church, it is not unusual to see the ascended Jesus working with the indwelling spirit to move the mission of God forward. So Paul is show, or Luke is showing us all of this in this short section. He's, he's giving us a foreshadowing in a good literary way of the major themes we will see repeated. So now let's look at Acts chapter 1 and let's pay attention to all of these themes that will come out of Acts chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's start with verse 6. You know what? Go back to 1, because there's some things here about the Holy Spirit that I want you to see as well. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after giving commands through the Holy Spirit to the gospels whom he to the uh, to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you've got the ascension and the Holy Spirit in that section. Now look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So see the connection in verse 6. They're asking about the restoration of the kingdom. Jesus presents the mission of God. You will go into the outermost parts. You will, you will bring the mission. You will be my witnesses. And he says, you will need the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes when I ascend because these two things, these two great doctrines work together. Before we move further into the discussion of the ascension and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, let me just point out one key little moment in verse 8 that I think is important. A big part of uh, marriage depends on believing what the Bible says about gender roles. And, uh, and that depends on actually believing what the Bible says about, like, these, these, this, this is sort of, you are this, you aren't that, you are this. And so, uh, so a big pivot, a big difference uh, between one view of marriage and another view of marriage is how you take what Paul says in Ephesians 5 when he says, the husband is the head of the house, uh, of the household. If you believe that to mean the husband should act like the head of the household, that's one thing. If you believe that the husband is the head, he's just either a good one or a bad one, um, then that's another thing. And that's, by the way, how we've built our marriage. It's, it's not a question of whether, it's a question of if I'm, a good, if I'm good at it or bad at it, if I'm kind, sacrificial, um, honoring, gentle, peaceful, strong, loving, or not. Either way, our household is defined by whether I am a good head or a bad head. This decision that will just take God's word presented as it says it, it is, is a very interesting way of developing a life. It's a very interesting way of living life. And by the way, even if you disagree with it, I would tell you, I like the way I'm doing it wrong better than the way you're doing it. So, so we can talk about it more later, but I'd be happy to, to, to talk about my marriage and be open and honest about its strengths and weaknesses, but... A big part of my life has changed just by taking these basic things in God's word as truth. I say that because I want to get you on my side when I kick you in the teeth here in verse 8. <laughs> but you will, receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses 
Uh, here's the kick in the teeth. You will be Christ's witnesses. You will be. You are a witness to Jesus Christ right now. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a witness of Jesus Christ. The question is whether you're any good at it. The question is what you're actually publicly proclaiming. You are a witness. And the world's understanding of Jesus is by and large connected to your good or bad witness. In the same way that I would be happy to talk about this idea of headship because I've been married for 23 years and it's been a good thing. Uh, it's been not an easy thing, but a good thing. I'd be, I'm, I'm happy to say, let's, let's take 23 years and talk in connection to my life about this scripture. In the same way, the world needs to be able to say, what do the witnesses of Jesus say about Jesus? And you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, a witness of Jesus. Friends, it's not really about me hammering over and over again this idea of sharing the gospel because I'm eager to see the church grow, though that, of course, is true. And I'm eager to see people come to Christ, though that is, of course, true. The simple truth is, is that the basic proposition, I assume, is, is that you actually want to know God. And if you want to know God, you'll need to meet him on mission. Because that's who he is. This isn't a peripheral. This isn't an a la carte option. This is the centrality of his character. Is to go into broken things and fix them. And if you want to know God, you will have to join him in the action of going into broken things and fixing them. You can't know God outside of his activity. So you will be a witness. Now this will be means that we ought to really be concerned about, well, how is this going to happen? What is this going to look like? And suddenly two doctrines that may seem sometimes a bit academic really have a powerful influence on our understanding of how we will be a witness. The doctrine of the risen Christ and the doctrine of the indwelt Holy Spirit. The first thing I want you to see, this is going to be a two-parter. We'll look at it again next week. The first thing I want you to see about these two doctrines and their connection, correlation with each other, and their connection to the kingdom, and their connection to the character of God, the mission of God, is the union of material and spiritual. The union of material and spiritual. Both of these doctrines, the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus and the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, both of these doctrines point to the primacy of the spiritual over the material. What do I mean by that? I mean, both of these ideas point to, declare, disclose that the spiritual is more important than the physical. The spiritual is over the physical. The spiritual is over the material. And this is all because the creator is over the creation. And speaking of things that have made a big difference in my life, I can't tell you how big a difference that has made in my life. It is amazing how when you get those two things in the right order, so much starts to make more sense. Uh, life just starts making more sense 
when we get the spiritual stuff right. All of the physical stuff of my life, I've got plenty of physical concerns and questions about my life, but all of it just begins to work differently when I let the spiritual stuff guide the material stuff. When this basic uh, hierarchy takes place in which the creator stands above the creation and the giver stands above his gifts, stuff just starts to work. That's because the world was designed this way. It's as if we stumbled onto the on switch for an abundant life. The creator is over the creation. And both of these doctrines show that. Okay, and I don't think I need to explain so much why that is, because either doctrine, let's just put it this way, none of this is special without the Spirit of God. None of this is special unless God's, the spiritual is involved. Um, so so th- these doctrines show us a way of life that is bigger than just chasing, uh, than just following our nerve endings. Right? Uh, th- 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 these doctrines show us a way of life bigger, better, more transcendent, honestly bringing more joy than simply following uh, whatever particular part of your body has the most nerve endings. That's because the spiritual is over the material. In Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is just a basic statement of the spiritual over the material. Now, that's really important. I think most Christians get that. And I worry that most Christians get that too much, by the way. I worry that we, we fall into a kind of subtle Gnosticism that starts to believe that the eternal future is just a bunch of wispy clouds and that we're all these immaterial beings hanging out in this non-material heaven. And that heaven, the, the, honestly, the impetus for, for courage and for for risk in our lives, the idea of eternal glory, eternal reward. Man, if you held that out to me when I was 12 or now that I'm 42, you hold out to me that I get to float on a cloud, that there's no materiality to my eternal reward. It isn't a reward. I was created as a material being. I have a spirit. I have a body. I like both of them a lot. So I'm concerned that sometimes the gospel message eclipses the material because we follow the basic trajectory of what I just said previously, and that is is that the spiritual is more important than the material. And if we follow that trajectory in a very human way, we wind up floating around in wispiness. I just hate the word wispy. But this is so glorious. In God's economy, what do stronger things do for weaker things? In God's economy, what do more honorable things do to less honorable things? In God's economy, what do powerful things do for weak things? In God's economy, it is the glory of God for the primary to enter the secondary and lift it up. In God's economy, it is the glory of God, it is the beauty of God to enter into the lesser and give it as much glory and honor as you can. That's the whole idea of the gospel. By the way, that's the whole reason why headship eludes so many people is they don't understand this basic concept. 
in God's economy, it is the joy of the strong to bless and empower and gift the weak. To lay down your life for the weak. So, when we say that the spiritual is over the material, we say that's absolutely in the Bible. But then we say, and God loves to love the lesser. God loves to empower the weak. God loves to make whole the broken. God loves to exalt that which is unexalted. The last will be first. So yes, in God's world, in the world that is, if you get the spiritual right, the physical will follow. If we seek first the kingdom of God, all of these other things will be added to us. That's clear. But what we would never want to do is to think, that somehow because the spiritual is over the physical, that the physical doesn't matter. It's just the opposite to a God who loves the weak and the lesser. He delights. He proves his character in how he cares for that which cannot care for him. This is an old statement I heard back in the 1980s. If I told you who it was attributed to, you won't listen, so I won't. Uh, uh, it just said that the, 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 the substance of a man's character is defined by how he treats someone who can do nothing for him. The substance of a man's character is how he treats someone who can do nothing for him. And in both the doctrines of ascension and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we see a God who is is deeply in love with his creation, even though it can do nothing for him. We see the spiritual bending down to caress the material. We see God insisting that the fulfillment of his mission is that the two become one. And this is what we see with Jesus, of course. God made flesh, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man dwelling amongst us. The union of these two things, the, the glorious with the inglorious, the creator with his creation, the cause with the effect. This is what Jesus is. This is the incarnation of Jesus, the union of eternal with temporal and spiritual with material. So it's important when we think about the ascension that we understand that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he went out of his way to demonstrate the physicality of his resurrected body. Jesus suffers a brutal death for the sins of those whom he would save. He is laid in a grave, beaten, profoundly beaten. He's dead. He is resurrected. And as he goes about... Uh, with encounters with the disciples over 40 days, all of the accounts of those encounters seem to make the physicality of Jesus' resurrected body the emphasis. Give me some food to eat. I'm going to walk here. I'm going to walk there. Here are my scars. Uh, Here, I made you some food. The physicality of Jesus seems to be a primary theme in the post-resurrection of Jesus. So that when Jesus ascends to heaven, 
his physical ascension of a body begins to be a central theme. The Westminster Confession says it this way. In his body, Jesus was crucified and died and was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven. This this idea that Jesus took on flesh in the incarnation and has carried that flesh through his crucifixion, his resurrection, and has now ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father is a key but often neglected truth of our faith. It's the idea that in a true holy of holies, the most holy place, the very throne room of God, the most spiritual place, there is a human being ruling over the cosmos. Now, he is more than a human being, but he is not less than a human being. So I want you to hold that idea in your head. The ascended Jesus bodily reigning in the immaterial over the cosmos. Can you hold that in your head? I don't think you can. Let's just picture Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Hold that in one lobe of your brain. And go over here with the other lobe. We're going we're to do double lobing today. Uh, hold, uh, over here, let's talk about the indwelling of the Spirit. Couple this idea of Jesus bodily at the right hand of the Father with the Spirit coming down. God ascends. God descends. The ascension says... Humanity has ascended with Christ into the throne room of God. That's what the ascension says. Humanity has ascended with Christ into the throne room of God. The indwelling says divinity has descended into the throne room of man, the heart. You have humanity going up, but not only humanity. You have divinity coming down. You have Jesus ruling at the right hand of the Father bodily, and you have the Spirit coming into us to dwell in our bodies, to dwell in our hearts. The ascension and the indwelling working together to bring His kingdom to fruition. A ruling Christ and an indwelling Spirit. The union forever of material and immaterial. The, ruling, the union forever of spiritual with material. That, that's what I'm, I want you to see is one application point on this. God's commitment to his creation has set in concrete. If he'd come and taken on flesh in the incarnation and suffered physically, rose and then ascended without a body, we would say that Jesus' dabbling in human flesh was sort of this yucky phase that he had to get through to get us all into wispiness. But the fact that Jesus took that body with him to rule eternally means that God's commitment to his creation is unbreakable. God's commitment to his creation is complete. The other day, uh, they poured a concrete slab out in front of our steps at our apartment. And I tried to get Wes to write his name in it, telling him there's no way he'd get caught. He, he paused for a minute and he thought through. 
the ascension of Jesus in the flesh is this concrete setting on this commitment to his creation. We are now in a very unique phase in history. There is a glorified human body at the right hand of the eternal God. And there is God in the hearts of his followers. We are in a very unique time in history. So this means, among other things, that God has full regard for your body. He loves to love the weak things, after all. He loves to turn broken things into strong things. He loves to turn disgraceful things into honorable things. He loves to turn used up things into renewed things. He loves to turn defiled things into clean things. God loves to love the broken. At the end of Paul's glorious exaltation to seek and pursue only Jesus In chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. How is this transformation taking place? What is this power? What's the power of the Spirit? Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Friends, there are going to be plenty of times when you just as soon not have a particular part of your body. Jesus actually predicts this, right? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter into eternity, into the kingdom with one eye than to you know, go to hell. There are these all sorts of points. I remember my dad and I, my dad's here. Hi, hi mom, dad. Hi, Bonnie, my mother-in-law. Um, I remember uh, we were setting a mousetrap, and, uh, and he said, if you get your finger caught in this, I was pretty young, he said, if you get your finger caught in this, you're going to wish you didn't have a finger. <laughs> it's going to hurt that bad. Friends, throughout our lives, there will be these things, this, this, these, these pieces of our physicality that we wish just weren't there. They're these great hindrances, we think. They're these great, these, these great tempters, we think. I just want you to understand how absolutely confident Christ is in his rule over your body. He has it under control. He has a plan for every bit of it. Maybe for some of the plan is to lose some of it. But he has a plan and he is in control. If you've walked any time at all in your body, you felt it betray you. You felt it not do what you want it to do. You felt it not to give you what you want it to give you. You felt it give you things you didn't want. Jesus is in charge of all that. 
He is Lord over the body. He now stands in eternity, physically seated at the right hand of the Father, and we know that our body will be like his body. That he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Listen, when your body lets you down, and friends, it, I am now prepared to say that when I've had profound moments where my body has let me down, often involving severe injury, chronic pain, that depression is always right on the door of those moments. When my body lets me down, I feel like depression's just two steps away. And I didn't always used to know that, and I would wander into that door without realizing it. Now when my body lets me down, I know to shut that door and be careful. But there's just something about the frailty of our physicality that can bring such discouragement. And you've probably, if you've, if you've walked around in your, in, in, in your uh, skin suit for any length of time, have become discouraged from time to time over its limitations. But friends, though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day from one degree of glory to the next. And I would just say, the next time your body lets you down, understand it is God's way of saying, you will have, and you have right now, in Christ, a future in which that is no longer possible. The day is coming when your body will work for you to delight in God forever. The day is coming, as I've always told people, trying to correlate these two things, when all godliness will be pleasurable and all pleasure will be godly. Christ means to redeem the body. And the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we haven't really discussed much, we'll get more to that next week, these two things are promises that our weakness will be sewn up with strength. I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus' glorified body is the crowning achievement of material creation. Let me say that one more time. I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus' glorified body is the crowning achievement of material creation. It's the best thing ever created. It's the best thing, emphasis on thing, ever created. And it has scars. Let's let that soak in. The best thing God ever created has scars. The Bible says that the wounds of his crucifixion endure, remain physically intact, and will do so forever. Friends, let's talk about your body a little bit more. If the best thing ever created has scars, to me that redefines beauty, it redefines perfect, and it sure definitely redefines success. It redefines success. Friends, the gospel is constantly reshaping and sharpening my view of success. And even this thought of the ascended Jesus in the most perfect body ever created, bearing scars, redefines my vision of beauty, redefines my vision of wholeness, and redefines my vision of success.
Heaven is the eternal harvest of a single sacrifice. Heaven is the eternal harvest of a single sacrifice. One person laid down his everything. And heaven is the physical and spiritual harvest of that single seed falling to the ground and dying. And that informs me about how I should view my body. Not only with hope, but I want to tell it who's boss. Paul says, I, I beat my body, treat it like a slave, so that in the end, after preaching to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Back when I was, uh, I don't remember my age, but I was older in my late 20s, uh, I got a wild hair. I still had a little eligibility left in college to wrestle. Well, actually, I had all my college eligibility. I didn't wrestle in college before. So I'm like late 20s, and I decided to go up to the Baptist College an hour away from us every morning at 4 a.m. and start wrestling. My goodness, what a foolish choice that was. <laughs> the second day, I had to have my wife actually push me out of the bed. So I couldn't actually physically get out of the bed. But there was this coach there. Uh, and by the way, I didn't hold up long. <laughs> Uh, this isn't the story of me overcoming all odds and becoming <laughs> not that kind of story. But there was a coach there who would say to me, preach your, beat your body and make it a slave. So then in the end, after preaching to others, you might, yourself might not be disqualified. Now, I think he was a little out of context there. But if eternity is the celebration of the harvest of a single sacrifice of one man who did not regard his body as everything, but laid it down in faith because he knew the scriptures well enough to say, my God has a body prepared for me. If heaven is the eternal harvest of one glorious more than man, man willingness to lay down his physical body. For the sake of eternal glory. Not in some kind of false piety and asceticism. But in confidence that the physical glory that awaited him on the other side of that trial. Would more than make up for what he suffered. I hope to unpack all of that more in future sermons. But my goodness that is as... The more I think about it, that's what I want to unpack with my life. If heaven is the eternal harvest of a single sacrifice, if the most glorious thing in the world has scars, then maybe I'm not so afraid to collect a few scars on my journey in faith. Maybe I'm not so afraid to enter through a few fires as well. I'm concluding this message with a quote from a man named Garrett Dawson who wrote a book on the ascended Jesus. He says, Out of the most profound hope, the Christian church looks upon the worst setbacks and sufferings and declares, in the very teeth of death and loss, what of it? Christ reigns in heaven, and so, at the deepest level, all is well. 
What of my circumstance? I am in Christ. And he has triumphed. In him, by the Holy Spirit, I am kept in heaven. The ascension provides the very ground for my peace in every circumstance. Jesus reigns. So at the deepest level, all is well. How does that truth actually comfort you? Well, there's this other part of the Godhead. And sometimes he's called the comforter. The indwelling Holy Spirit can give you comfort with that truth in your daily life. Today we're going to baptize a group of really great young people. And I'm very thankful for this beautiful display of God's goodness to us. I think that there are always questions about what makes a Christian different from a non-Christian. And I think there are many ways to describe that. Practically, you might just say that the basic difference, as crazy as it may seem, is that a Christian has God living inside his heart. As crazy as it may seem, the basic difference isn't what they believe. There's definitely differences there. It's not a prayer they've prayed or a lifestyle they've chosen. We're reformed, and that means something. And basically what it means is, is that the thing, the first difference, is the Spirit taking up residency in our hearts. So that as glorious the truth is that Jesus reigns, at the right hand of the Father. And that's universal. You're a Christian, you're not a Christian. Jesus is still your boss. He's in charge of everything. But what's not universal, what is a question, what would separate us in this room from one group to another, is whether or not God has descended into this throne room. The Bible teaches that our hearts are sort of the throne room of our lives. They're the wellspring of life and that everything we really think and do kind of comes out of this spiritual center. Our speech comes from there. Our attitudes come from there. The glorious truth that we haven't talked too much about is that part of God's plan to bring the physical and the spiritual together forever is to fill the hearts of human beings with his own spirit. And so you might say that the most obvious, easiest way to describe the difference between what a Christian is and what a non-Christian is, is one is living with self on this throne and the other is living with the Spirit of God on this throne. It isn't necessarily easy to discern the difference when you talk about what you believe because lots of people who don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them have good ideas about God. And it isn't necessarily uh, easy to talk about this in terms of lifestyle because lots of good people, people better than me, don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. What you must fundamentally ask is, is someone else in here, as strange as that may seem, that this whole idea of revolution, saying that we live in completely different times, has to do not with the direction. You know, we've talked a lot about ascension and descension. It really has to do with possession. Jesus ascended to possess the throne. The Spirit descended to possess our hearts. How's that happened to you? That's the celebration of baptism that we're referring to. The celebration of baptism is a reference to the Holy Spirit changing a life 
bringing it from death into life. And that's what we'll celebrate today. Has that happened to you? The idea that Christ is in heaven and reigns will only bring comfort to someone who has the spirit inside of us boosting that signal back into our own hearts. It's not comfort to just anyone. It's comfort to those who have the spirit in their hearts. Something to think about. Next week, we'll talk more about the indwelling spirit. Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, we praise your name for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, it is beyond our ability to comprehend what it means for God to take on flesh. But we know, God, your word teaches that and it teaches that as a necessity of the faith, a necessity of what it what it means to uh, put our faith in you and a glorious comfort and a guide for how we live our lives. May your ascension, may your ruling at the right hand of the Father influence our lives in all sorts of ways, definitely in how we view our bodies. And Lord, may your indwelling spirit guide us in your truth. Lord, I lift up people today who maybe just have the opportunity to ask, So it's not about going to church. It's not about believing a certain thing. It's it's not even about certain morals. It's, It's about whether the life of God has been taken up in the soul of man. Whether the spirit of God is taking up residency in the heart of man. That's that's where it all starts. You would help them to ask that question, God. To ask you whether that is true. To help them to see that all the truths they probably already know when you work on them in power, convert our hearts, change us, make us new. Lord, as we participate in the Lord's table today, may this be a comfort to your saints. May it be an assurance of your reigning and your intention to return. May it be a comfort, Lord, to know that we celebrate the blood and body of Jesus, broken and spilled for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.